Welcome, everybody, to the first episode of Dead Punnett Society in 2020. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor. We are going into our third year of the podcast here, and I am very excited to bring all of you fine listeners some uh, really interesting topics and series kicking off the new year. I had I had imagined that we would start January in 2020 with a series on the Green New Deal, talking about radical politics in the context of facing down cataclysmic climate change. However, Trump's bellicose maneuvers in Iraq with respect to Iran forced me to alter course in a way to face down this threat of war as serious as it looks. So I am taking up a series in earnest here uh, on war and not just the conflicts in Iraq and Iran, but also trying to trace a genealogy, trying to understand what has happened to the anti-war movement and why there is such a gap in the threat on the one side faced by Trump and his bellicose actions and the people in his administration and also just the foreign policy consensus that's that's largely bipartisan right now in the United States. So the gap there between that and the other hand, the relatively absent response on what used to be the anti-war left. And my guest today is perfectly suited to help trace this lineage. Joining us on the program is Brad Simpson. He's an associate professor of history and Asian studies at the University of Connecticut. He has a really interesting history as an activist and a scholar. Brad, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Adam, for having me. So I was alerted to you and your work and your perspectives on this absence, this odd, strange absence of an anti-war response to Trump's assassination of Qasem Soleimani and and others in an Iraqi airport under circumstances uh, that are by the day becoming much more shady. It now appears that there is some evidence emerging from an Iraqi, uh, the Iraqi prime minister and some other MPs that it seems possible that Soleimani and his delegation was invited to Iraq as a part of some kind of peace brokerage deal of some sort. He was lured to the airport there and, and assassinated, allegedly. We'll see if that plays out uh, and we get some some more facts on this. But but it's just, it's an astonishing and bellicose action. And um, I think it requires a very serious response on the left. You yourself, Brad, have been a longtime anti-war activist and now a scholar sort of cutting your teeth on war, imperialism, and all the rest of it. Tell our audience as we get started here about your personal biography. You have spent a life on the anti-war left in some senses, haven't you? Yes. I went to college in the early 1990s, was radicalized by the first Persian Gulf War in 1991, and really began cutting my teeth as an activist working on the issue of the Indonesian occupation of East Timor, a tiny half-island nation which was invaded and occupied by Indonesia in 1975 with U.S. support until its independence in 2002. Um, and there, I think, are, are sort of differences in, in how people approach radical politics and activism. For me, I became involved in, in anti-war activism and solidarity and human rights work via a relatively small campaign that very few people knew about at the time. But one of the things that I quickly realized is that is that as a young person getting involved in human rights and anti-war activism, that there were lots of veterans uh, who had been active in the anti-Vietnam War movement, who had been involved in anti-nuclear activism, 
working on direct action campaigns around nuclear power plants and, and nuclear weapons, as well as activists who have been involved in the Central America Solidarity Movement. And it gave me a real sense of the of the sort of intellectual and, and activist genealogy of not just the campaign with which I was most intimately familiar, the East Timor Solidarity campaign, but also the genealogies of many of the activist campaigns and movements that that many people on the left were involved in. And as I went on to become a historian, I became interested in how such movements, anti-war movements, solidarity movements emerge, uh, how they function, uh, how and whether they succeed or not and why, um, and what we can learn from studying the history of such movements with an eye towards trying to build or or rebuild a strong anti-war movement today. So your own activism, as well as my own, I, I sort of cut my teeth as a leftist in the anti-war movement, as many people on uh, that I bring on Dead Punnett Society have you know, recounted over the years. I like to start off with a little sort of Howard Stern style personal biography. Tell me about yourself. You know, let's. Let's let's laugh. Let's let's cry. Uh, let's talk about your personal uh, your what makes you tick, what makes you you. And a lot of people will recount their their, you know, their histories, their 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 year one, year zero on the left starting in the anti-war movement. And and I share that with you. You were a full time organizer against the war in Iraq. Is that right? Talk about the kind of lead up to the Iraq war and the kind of lineages and the genealogies of the anti-war movement up to that point, because there seems to be some kind of like discontinuity between that moment and our present. That's really, um, not only is it concerning, but it's, it's, it's almost just kind of, um, it's very confusing, uh, to, to somebody like myself who has lived through that moment. I think a lot of leftists today are relatively new. They're, they're, they're the Bernie Kratz, the Bernie bros, the new democratic socialists, the Jacobin readers, People who haven't been around on the left much longer than two or three, maybe four years, they didn't live through that disjuncture. So describe for the audience what it was like back in 2003, 2004. Well, in order to understand that, we have to go back to the early 1990s when there was a very active movement against the first Persian Gulf War, which started in 1991, February of 1991. And like many People at the time, I participated in anti-war protests, um, but the movement against the war very quickly collapsed, in part because the war itself was so rapid, only 100 days. Uh, and there wasn't much energy and thought put into trying to build a sustained anti-war movement as opposed to merely trying to prevent the war itself from happening. Fast forward uh, a decade or so, and Iraq was was suffering under the harshest regime of economic sanctions in world history. And I had become involved in a tiny campaign called Voices in the Wilderness, which was openly defying the UN and US-backed economic sanctions on Iraq to bring medicine to Iraqi hospitals, sanctions which had killed upwards of, of half a million people uh, from starvation and preventable disease. And at the time, you know, the name of our campaign was called Voices in the Wilderness, and we literally were voices in the wilderness. There was almost no public awareness at all about the impact of sanctions on Iraq. And so when the Bush administration, after 9-11, started turning its attention to uh, the possibility of once again invading Iraq, there was a sort of cadre, a, a sort of reservoir of experienced activists who had been involved in organizing uh, anti-war campaigns, uh, but they were relatively scattered and, and far-flung. 
Um, but they were people who dated back to the anti-nuclear movement, to the Central America Solidarity Movement, some longtime Vietnam-era activists, uh, and others uh, who very quickly realized that there needed to be a national mobilization uh, against the coming war. And so in the fall of 2002, uh, United for Peace and Justice was organized. Um, it was a national coalition that represented the fractiousness of the liberal and, and uh, left uh, organizations that comprised it. Some of the member organizations had a very sort of sharp critique of U.S. empire and foreign policy, and others uh, were what we might call more sort of liberal progressive opponents of the war who opposed this war, but not necessarily all wars, and who had a sort of different critique of U.S. foreign policy rooted in opposition to the militarism of the Bush administration as opposed to the militarism of U.S. foreign policy more broadly. Um, and in 2003, I was finishing my dissertation at Northwestern University, uh, and I uh, had sort of run out of money, had six months or so to, to finish my dissertation. And so I went to work for the War Resisters League, a longtime radical pacifist organization, and ended up being sort of seconded to United for Peace and Justice to work as a staff person, uh, doing lots of grunt work, trying to coalition build with the organization to plan for the February 15th, 2003 day against war, which at the time was the largest single demonstration in world history, more than 12 million people in 660 cities in the U.S. and around the world. And what that experience taught me up until that point, uh, on the one hand, was just how difficult it is to engage in sustained movement building and not just protest mobilizing. There's a big difference between organizing a protest and 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 organizing a campaign or mobilizing a movement, uh, especially one which we hope will sustain itself uh, over the long haul. And we can usefully compare the movement against the Iraq war to previous movements um, opposing the Vietnam War, uh, the Central America Solidarity Movement, for example, and ask, what were the characteristics of those movements, the people who were involved in them, who organized them, that made them successful or not, and according to which measure were they successful, and what can we learn from the successes and failures of those movements? Um, one of the things that seemed inspiring at the time was was just how many people came out to protest the second Persian Gulf War in 2003 before it even started, uh, whereas the first Persian Gulf War, there was uh, one major national demonstration during the Vietnam War, for example, there were no public demonstrations until almost a year after the war had escalated with uh, U.S. bombing and the introduction of U.S. ground troops in March of 1965. But here we were in February 2003, and there were 700,000 people in New York City. Uh, and I remember listening to um, Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! sort of calling out the, the numbers from the protests taking place in Rome, in Lisbon, in Rio de Janeiro, in Mexico City, uh, in cities around the world. Millions of people were marching against this war. And the next day, the New York Times had a front page article declaring the anti-war movement uh, a new superpower uh, in international politics. Uh, and then a few short weeks later, the war started anyways. And the largest uh, most swiftly organized, most broad-based anti-war movement in the history of the world uh, collapsed uh, in a matter of months uh, as the war and occupation of Iraq ground on. And it Anybody never who doesn't remember the shock and awe campaigns, that media PR stunt, uh, you know, I, I, we, we turned on the television in, in uh, my high school. I was a senior in high school at the time. I'm dating myself here, a little younger than you probably, but uh, – 
you know, uh, I remember watching the shock and the missiles and the nights lighting up the night sky in Iraq and people shouting USA, USA, you know, and, and in, in a sense, it was a really masterful rebuttal to this really, you know, early and inspiring anti-war response. Uh, what happened thereafter? What happened to the anti-war movement that looked so promising in early 20, uh, 2003? Well, that's a really important question. Um, and one thing we can say about the legacies of the Vietnam War and the Vietnam War movement was that the Pentagon and and the the sort of folks who, who organize U.S. military power, both in the Department of Defense, as well as civilian war planners and their associated military contractors, recognize that prolonged indecisive wars generate uh, public opposition and generate public uh, public sort of disaffection. And U.S. warfighting strategy changed dramatically after the Vietnam War. Uh, the U.S. Military, the Defense Department completely overhauled uh, its its warfighting capabilities. Uh, began to focus much more on building uh, sort of swifter, smaller uh, units that could that could rapidly be deployed around the world. Um, the first Persian Gulf War was a war fought almost entirely from the air. The ground campaign was incredibly was incredibly swift uh, and involved a relatively small number of, of U.S. and coalition forces in comparison to previous wars. And the Pentagon rightfully uh, concluded from the Vietnam experience that that it would be very difficult to mobilize effective anti-war movements if the United States fought uh, swift wars against overmatched opponents. Uh, that did not involve large numbers of U.S. ground forces. Mm -hmm. And so the first Persian Gulf War, which killed hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, uh, resulted in 99 U.S. casualties, uh, 99 U.S. military deaths. Uh, the second Persian Gulf War, you know, from 2003 until the present, has resulted in the deaths of about 5,300 American servicemen, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, compared to 58,000 during the Vietnam War. And so one conclusion we can draw is that the nature of U.S. warfare uh, largely conducted by uh, from afar, uh, from the air, by drones, uh, by service members uh, using joysticks uh, from underground bunkers in in Nevada, rather than 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 infantry troops fighting on the ground, uh, provide far less opportunity uh, for the American public uh, to see the reality of of the experience of war and its impact. Right, right. I mean, I think we'd be remiss if we also papered over. And I, I sort of, I frame this conversation in terms of the first and the second uh, Gulf Wars, but we're we're really papering over the cruise missile liberal period of the of the mid to late '90s, aren't we? And, and thinking about the cause of the Balkan Wars and and so on, in, in which you know the the you know the, the the bellicose nature of the Republican Party under George H. W. Bush was transferred into the third way liberalism of Clinton, right? And the, the, the alleged humanitarian interventions of, of the cruise, more, cruise missile li liberalism days. Uh, talk, talk to us a little bit about that because that seems to be a really pivotal uh, – that seems to be a really pivotal uh, transition point there, at least certainly ideologically speaking, between you know this alleged hawkishness of, of the Republicans on the one side versus the relative dovishness of the Democrats on the other, which of course has never really held up entirely. But now you see just as – Many liberals in the U.S. foreign policy establishment sort of beating their chests uh, as you do neocons in some senses. Yeah. So we have to remember that in the early to mid 1990s, uh, after the end of the Cold War, the U.S. military budget uh, declined to what by 
by any comparable standard, is still a vast amount of money, about $440 billion uh, in, in sort of fixed dollars in, in the early 1990s, uh, compared to $780 billion, nearly, nearly double uh, that figure in 2019, 2020. Uh, and, and the Clinton administration, of course, faced a very different geopolitical landscape. Uh, it faced uh, a lot of domestic opposition to, to, um, to engaging in military intervention around the world, uh, but it also faced international crises for which U.S. military and civilian planners uh, thought they needed a response that would legitimize uh, a continuation of massive military budgets, a continuation of a global basing strategy in which U.S. troops and, and military equipment were, were ensconced in hundreds of military bases around the world. And so one of the doctrines that emerges in the 1990s is a doctrine of limited warfare and humanitarian intervention, uh, crafted partly in response to uh, the, the collapse of Somalia, the genocide in Rwanda, and the Bosnian civil wars, uh, for which U.S. military and civilian officials were unwilling to intervene directly, but were willing to uh, intervene via NATO uh, allied forces or via the use of bombing and cruise missiles and later drone warfare. Um, the historian Samuel Moyne is currently writing, is one of the one of the most important historians of human rights, is currently writing a, a very important book, I think, on the intellectual history of humanitarian warfare. Uh, the the increasing prevalence of forms of warfare that involve fewer and fewer casualties on the part of the United States, especially, uh, and, and, and in absolute terms, fewer casualties on the part of the countries that were bombing and attacking, but which have resulted in a kind of permanent warfare footing in which the United States is always intervening somewhere around the world, uh, using ever more remote and ostensibly clean and humanitarian forms of warfare uh, that legitimize that legitimize a permanent uh, military uh, intervention on a global scale, uh, and we may think that that the reduction in sort of U.S. the U.S. troop presence in Iraq or Afghanistan, uh, the relatively small footprint of U.S. forces in the Middle East compared to say ten years ago, means that the U.S. is not intervening as much. Uh, but actually, the opposite is the case. U.S. special forces are engaged in uh, more than a dozen countries in Africa alone. Uh, U.S. drone warfare, which was which was uh, initiated by the Bush administration, uh, but really expanded in in a in a vast way by the Obama administration, uh, in part as a way to try and achieve foreign policy goals on the cheap, but with a with a patina a sort of layer of of humanitarian legalism justifying it as a sort of cleaner, more precise form of warfare, which would result in fewer civilian casualties which would give military planners greater precision in choosing targets, but which have in some ways loosened the political constraints and reduced the political opposition to the exercise of military force abroad by the United States. Uh, since the threshold for engaging in a drone strike, for example, uh, is far lower than the threshold for, say, the introduction of U.S. ground forces or a sustained bombing campaign, uh, which requires at least... Um, an attempt at crafting political consensus and a political coalition of Congress, whereas the kind of warfare that the U.S. routinely engages in around the world now uh, 
takes place almost wholly out of public sight, uh, almost wholly beyond the reach of any sort of democratic accountability, and often without even uh, the barest of knowledge on the part of relevant congressional committees and, and congresspeople, much less the broader American public. Right. And that ideological component is really important, sort of maps on to the transformations and sort of military technology and, and uh, you know, uh, forms of global governance, you know, brought about by American hegemony and American imperialism such that, you know, a drone strike can take out a couple relatively unknown leaders in some place in Africa, right? And if it gets out in the press, you can say that, well, we took care of the bad guys, right? You, you break the rules, you kill Americans, you kill innocents, you know, justice is meted out by the policeman of the world, i.e. the United States, you know, the empire of the U.S. Uh, it, it sort of maps on ideologically very well to our, our notions of justice, uh, our, you know, our so-called justice, right? That the bad guys get what's coming to them and that we are unequivocally good in our actions and well-intentioned and, and so on and so on. I'll have to have Sam uh, Moyne back on the show. He's been on the show before, but he's one of those academic mutants who – writes books faster than I can bring them back on DPS, but it's astonishing. Uh, yeah, the, I, don't, I don't trust those guys. Sam's a great guy. I, I, I jest, but uh, I, some, you know, something deep down, there's something deeply wrong with those people. Uh, they're so, they're so productive. <laughs> so we'll have to, I have to bring it back on and talk about that stuff, but we, we've got you on and let's talk about, let's, let's bring folks up to present uh, the past, say 10 years, because on the one hand we see, uh, a rise in progressive and even overtly socialist and left-wing politics. You know, I mean, this show is, is itself is, is owes its success, its relative success anyway, to, to that rise. Um, I'd like to think we've contributed to it as well, but we would be nothing without Bernie Sanders, the rise of Jacobin and that wave of, of new millennial socialists and radicals and progressives uh, that are seeing large shakeups inside and outside the Democratic Party of the United States and, of course, abroad as well. But that has sort of coincided paradoxically with a relative decline in the anti-war left. It's not quite as apparent if you find yourself in D.C. You know, I, I palled around with the Code Pink folks uh, for a little while, you know, many years ago and uh, watched them get arrested on many occasions, uh, saw, you know, the Daily Show's John Stewart uh, you know, perform that ridiculous false equivalence between Code Pink on the left and the Tea Party or whomever on the right. Uh, I, I lived through that nonsense. And but today, you know, it's hard to find any staunch anti-war specialists among people on the left at all. They're much more likely to take up uh, labor causes, economic causes, maybe racial justice, gender justice, uh, mm -hmm. those types of things, which are all incredibly important. And yet they're imagined to be in some senses separate or relatively distinct from war and imperialism. Why has that become the dominant way of bracketing our, our movements and our ways of thinking on the left? Well, I think it's a mistake to assume that Americans, especially people on the left, are not concerned with foreign policy. Um, people on the left have always been, have always been internationalists. Uh, and we can look back to the to the anti-imperialist movements of the early 20th century. Uh, but I think that the last decade has seen a sort of fragmentation of the left around issues that have made it more difficult to to articulate sort of broad strategic goals that that 
that achieved the sort of intersectionality, which may have been more readily apparent, for example, in the 1960s. And there again, in the 1960s, there were there were broad social and political movements uh, which viewed themselves as being in conversation with each other. The civil rights movement, uh, a revived feminist movement, an anti-Vietnam War movement, a sort of countercultural movement, uh, a Native American sovereignty movement. And those movements may have had somewhat different immediate goals for their own purposes, but they broadly saw themselves as part of a global movement uh, for for freedom, for human rights, uh, against empire, against racism. And I think that that kind of broad internationalism and, and cross-issue analysis is still present on the left. What's missing uh, is the kind of, of broad organizing on the left, which brings people uh, together around sort of shared strategic goals. Uh, the climate justice movement is a really great example of a movement that has that has done an amazing job in mobilizing people around the threat posed by catastrophic climate change. Uh, but up until now, especially in Congress and and in sort of broad public discussion, has not made very clear connections between climate change and, and militarism, for example, and the need for not just a Green New Deal, uh, but the need for dramatic reduction uh, and redirection of the U.S. military budget uh, as an essential component of any attempt to wean the United States from fossil fuels and stave off catastrophic climate change. Um I have, like many, been involved in 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 activist campaigns uh, and tried to sort of do my part uh, on on uh, racial justice, on on sort of healthcare issues, on other sort of foreign policy related uh, foreign policy related campaigns and 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 topics. Uh, but I think that part of the problem that we face as activists today uh, is that there is no coherent anti-war organization that can bring together people under a sort of umbrella that that unifies differing strands of the anti-war uh, anti-war liberals and anti-war leftists in the United States and that can articulate a really coherent policy position uh, or set of policy visions around which we can organize. Uh, that's one problem, which is an organizing problem. What are the goals uh, around which organizations can mobilize uh, what are the what are the sort of tactical or strategic alliances that would be necessary to achieve those goals? But I think a, a equally important problem is that the anti-war movements in U.S. history that have achieved the most success, not necessarily in in actually ending wars, because I think it's it's an uncomfortable fact that the anti-war movement in the United States has historically not been able to prevent wars so much as perhaps mitigate some of their worst consequences or prevent them from expanding. But the two most successful movements in modern American history, the anti-Vietnam War movement and the anti-Central American intervention movement, the Central America Solidarity Movement, which was organized in the 1980s by activists seeking to oppose U.S. support for the Contras, a terrorist army attempting to overthrow the government of Nicaragua, as well as opposing U.S. support for, for military governments in El Salvador and Guatemala. The anti-Vietnam War movement and the Central America Solidarity Movement uh, joined people in a sort of effective solidarity. Uh, activists knew not just what they were fighting against, U.S. intervention and empire, uh, but what they were fighting for, which was the right for peoples in Central America and Vietnam and elsewhere uh, to self-determination, you know, for, for human rights and, and independence. Same thing with the 
South Africa Solidarity Movement, which was a very effective solidarity movement, but not necessarily an anti-war movement. It was clear sort of who the good guys were. Uh, and that and that gave people the opportunity to engage in a sort of process of, of long-term acculturation uh, to the politics of different places, to building uh, real ties of friendship and solidarity that helped to sustain movements over the long haul, even when they face lots of lots of challenges and and sometimes outright defeat. Uh, we don't see that in the in the current political environment. It's clear enough that many Americans oppose U.S. military intervention uh, in in many countries, but it's it's less clear uh, what the what the sort of effective internationalism and the effective solidarity that could be practiced by an anti-war left in the United States is right now. Uh, no one is is practicing any sort of active empathy for for the kinds of organizations and movements uh, which which are operating in, say, the Middle East and North Africa, uh, which are engaging in horrible atrocities, but which we nevertheless oppose U.S. military intervention uh, to try and resolve those crises. So I think we have to ask some hard questions about what would be the ideological and political sort of positive program for the anti-war left in the United States as it is currently constituted. And I think that those are very difficult political and strategic questions when you're looking at uh, you know, say Iraq and and Iran and Syria, uh, where there are no there are no good political actors uh, from from the perspective of many leftists. There's lots of bad choices, and maybe the worst choice is continued U.S. intervention and and militarism. Uh, but the results of those choices are not necessarily more appetizing from a political or even a moral standpoint. And I think that that's a really important conversation to be having. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean I, we've talked quite a, bit, quite a bit about the messiness and the gray areas that exist in, in those those, uh, you know, those conflicts over the past few years on this podcast. One of the things I haven't talked a lot about and I've, I've sort of signaled to it, but I, I was very active in the Palestinian solidarity uh, community <clears throat> over the past 10 years. Uh, I, if, if anything, I say I cut my teeth on anti-war and my entree into the left. Uh, it was really the Palestinian justice movement that that got me into to more stridently sort of more holistic uh, socialist politics, and uh, not only just being a, wor- a broke ass working class kid, but but also that that movement, um, and 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 that's held up in some ways as as one of the shining successes of the anti war anti imperialist movement, and yet it has really run aground. If you look at the some of the organizations you know, as they exist over the past several years. And it, and it ran aground on, on an iceberg <laughs> called uh, the Syrian civil war, meaning that the people who were mostly involved, the cadres of in the, the real institutions and organizations that grounded that movement found themselves, I started to say at loggerheads, that's putting it lightly, Brad. <laughs> they found themselves mortal enemies in some ways over how to interpret that conflict. How to how to interpret the actions the the regime of uh, Bashar al-Assad? How to think about U.S. intervention in that moment? How to in, you know envision ISIS and America's intervention there? Th- thinking about uh, Russia and Iran's very twisted and morally difficult. You know, it's it's difficult to think about a guy like Hassem. Uh, Soleimani, you know, who who isn't a good guy, but hey, neither are our generals. I think most generals are unilaterally bad guys. 
And yet Soleimani was leading the, the good fight against ISIS, uh, mm-hmm. you know, liberating Yazidis, liberating a lot of other ethnic minorities and, and other Arabs as well. And so these are very morally muddy waters that we're treading in. And, and I watched this almost entirely destroy the prospects of the BDS movement in the United States. And it broke my fucking heart. It did. Because I spent years building organizations, recruiting cadres, and, and seeing a lot of successes in that movement. And, 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 and they were squashed almost overnight by the sectarianism that arose from the Syrian conflict. Yeah, sectarianism has always been a problem on the U.S. anti-war left. And those problems existed in the 1960s. Um, but also broad-based internationalism of the sort that has sustained Palestinian solidarity work has also existed since the 1960s. In the 1960s and 70s, for example, uh, the Black Panthers and other civil rights and black nationalist organizations were very deeply involved uh, in supporting Palestinian self-determination, uh, a sort of nexus that unfortunately has has faded uh, in in recent decades. But the Palestinian Solidarity Movement is a really good example of a movement that that has in many ways failed to achieve its broad strategic goals, which is to help bring about meaningful self-determination for Palestinians uh, living in the West Bank and Gaza Strip or in exile uh, or living as refugees abroad. Uh, by any stretch of the imagination, the situation for people living in Gaza is is worse than, than it has maybe ever been. The prospects uh, for a Palestinian state are probably more dim than they've ever been. And yet the movement has sustained itself for decades in the face of extraordinary hostility, racism, and, and repression in the U.S. and in other countries around the world, in part because of a sort of effective solidarity. And by effective, I mean affect with an A and not effect with an E, a sort of effective solidarity uh, with Palestinians largely engaged in sort of nonviolent resistance to the Israeli occupation, and in many cases, uh, nonviolent resistance to uh, the Palestinian Authority uh, and to, and to uh, Palestinian governments that are just as fearful as the Israeli government of an effective nonviolent movement uh, that might challenge the corruption of the Palestinian Authority or or um, of other organizations there as it does the Israeli government. Uh, and that is that is sustain the Palestinian solidarity movement in part because we know who the good guys are. Yeah. Uh, right. And the good guys are the good guys are are the Palestinians who who are not only sort of fighting against the Israeli occupation, uh, and we could debate whether or not it's legitimate for Palestinians to engage in, in sort of armed struggle. Uh, I, for myself, don't believe it's it's my role to um, to choose the, the, choose the ways in which other people try and resist uh, military occupation. Uh, but many Americans can, can look and see who the good guys are. Uh, they are the the movements that are attempting to nonviolently resist occupation, and those movements are oftentimes also seeking uh, a sort of positive political program and transformation of of Palestinian society itself, which means challenging the corruption and militarism and authoritarianism of the Palestinian uh, Palestinian ruling elites. But that doesn't necessarily mean the movement has succeeded, but it does make it a little less morally ambiguous than, say, the Syrian civil war or or the current situation with regards to Iran. Well, tell uh, that to where, Canary Mission, because they've been saying some really not nice things about me online. 
I have long since I have long since abandoned the hope of, of engaging in sort of sectarian uh, sectarian debates because because really those are those are debates among cadres. You know, yeah. they're debates among among the the sort of hardcore political activists who may sustain movements uh, in you know, when they're sort of withering on the vine or when they're not very popular. But those are generally not the, the people who are who are helping to drive movements uh, when they face moments of opportunity that create possibilities for, for real expansion. Um, and and as a historian and a scholar, and, and you strike me as someone who has a similar historical sensibility, um, anti-war movements need cadres. They need people Absolutely. with broad, deep experience in organizing campaigns and organizing sort of rapid responses, people who know and have experience in the nuts and bolts of organizing uh, across a range of, of areas, whether it be organizing congressional campaigns, lobbying campaigns, organizing demonstrations, uh, engaging in the sort of nitty gritty of organizing, building leadership, engaging in political education, so that people who are perhaps uh, coming to an issue or coming to a campaign for the first time uh, can gain a better understanding, not just of why they should oppose U.S. intervention in Iran, but why U.S. intervention in Iran is part of a longer history of U.S. Uh, empire and 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 war making uh, that has explanations, that has causes, and that we can describe and name those causes and use that understanding uh, as a way of building the kind of political consciousness which can articulate goals for not just ending U.S. intervention in one war, uh, but rolling back U.S. empire and militarism across the board, which is, of course, a much more daunting task uh, and and one which we'll probably spend the rest of our lives working on. Uh, but those are, you know, those people are important. Um, I think right now we face a different kind of uh, challenge, which is how do we as activists, as leftists, tap into the broad revival of, of the socialist and democratic socialist left in this country mm-hmm. uh, and and use that energy, which has has rightfully been focused on climate change and racial justice uh, and, and providing health care for everyone and mobilizing for for Bernie Sanders and candidates at the local level. Uh, how do we steer some of that energy or incorporate an anti-war perspective into this resurgence of socialist activism so that anti-war politics becomes a core part of what we do as we try and mobilize and reconstruct the socialist left in the United States. Spot on. This is, after all, a cadre-oriented show. I seriously doubt there are many normies uh, listening. In the sense of normie, I mean the people for whom politics is, uh, you know, little more than something that they engage in at the ballot box or occasionally uh, around the, the water cooler at work. We are political nerds. We are cadres, at least budding cadres. Many of us. And uh, so this is directed at, at, at us. This is about us. And I think that you're right to take on, you know, that we need to take that responsibility on our shoulders. It's a very exciting time. On the one hand, we have, uh, aside from Sanders, of course, the representatives Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and, of course, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez grilling the foreign policy establishment from the seat of power, right, from the seat of elected representative power. And all the limitations therein, and we can get into the political theory of how, you know, this, oh, this is the separation between politics and economics and this. And it's like, no, but, but you know, representative authority matters. And we are seeing a, a, a remarkable shift in our direction there over the past uh, several years. And I think that this is a good segue for us to wrap up talking about some of the stuff that you're currently working on. It's my understanding you're, you're thinking seriously about the global history of this idea of self-determination. And self-determination really grounds the kind of foreign policy approach 
of this new budding democratic socialist uh, movement. I've had uh, historians like uh, Daniel Bessner on the show over the over the years talking very seriously about you know how is it that we that we promote a certain kind of foreign policy and foreign policy establishment that 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 vows to to protect the self determination the democratic will of other nations uh, rather than just sort of imposing our own will on them and how do we how do we think seriously about constructing a global order today. Right. Not this kind of internationalist, communist, uh, utopian future. Uh, But today, how do we work towards building a foreign policy and military establishment that promotes uh, this concept of self-determination? This is a very broad (laughs) provocation to to wind up the show here. Um, But how are you thinking about this in terms of the idea of self-determination for your work? Well, I am primarily interested in understanding why certain ideas of self-determination have sort of taken hold and gained traction in international society as ways of thinking about human rights and sovereignty. Um, And these are ideas that grew out of anti-colonial movements uh, in the early to mid 20th century and that were taken up by a wide range of of peoples and, and movements from the black nationalist movement in the United States to indigenous rights campaigners around the world uh, to gay and lesbian activists in countries uh, from the United States to Indonesia calling for for sexual self-determination. So my interest in these ideas is is in part as an activist, in part as a scholar, um, but they involve a process of acculturation that I think is relevant for thinking about the challenges facing the anti-war left today. And what I mean by acculturation is that ideas about self-determination, the, the, the phrase self-determination, the idea of self-determination, is simply one way of talking about a very old idea, which is that people should govern themselves without interference, as long as the, by way of governing themselves, they're not oppressing others. Uh, these are not new ideas. Uh, and the idea that people should have the right to determine their own political, economic, and cultural destinies without Uh, outside interference, according to the democratic will of their constituents, is not a new idea. But I think we need to ask, what does that mean in the United States in 2020 in the context of a resurgent socialist left? And what does that mean for for the longer-term challenge of trying to educate and politicize uh, the broad masses of the American public around an agenda, a political agenda, and a vision of our political future, which is not militarized? I think that one of the chief challenges facing the anti-war movement in the U.S., such as it exists, is to reorient American culture and to prompt Americans to rethink the very idea of what American power and identity is in the world. For more than 70 years, Americans have been taught through our schools, through our political campaigns, through our sporting events, that American identity and power is grounded in militarism in war making, in jets flying overhead at the start of the Super Bowl, uh, in a sense of the United States as as a superpower uh, with the capacity in theory to do good, but also to inflict untold damage and destruction on the rest of the world. And one of the deepest challenges we face is to figure out how we can contribute to a shift in American political culture and in the way that we identify ourselves as Americans, which isn't grounded in militarism and war making. And that is a a far broader challenge than simply reducing the military budget uh, and in opposing 
U.S. intervention in Iran. It means grappling with the more deeply rooted militarism and militarization of American culture more generally, uh, the incredibly widespread ownership of, of assault weapons, uh, the, the violence permeating our, our sort of media culture. Um, I think that American empire uh, is, is you know, American empire is a form of culture, uh, and it has spread into every nook and cranny of American life for more than 70 years. Uh, and, and building an effective anti-war movement that not only opposes war, but helps to create the cultural conditions uh, for, for an anti-war uh, for an anti-war politics uh, is an incredibly important question. And I think it's one that we haven't really paid very much attention to because, because in some ways those challenges seem, seem far greater uh, than, than the more immediate challenges of how we try and prevent the United States from intervening in Iran. We may yeah. prevent the U.S. from intervening and starting a war with Iran, but we will still have a $780 billion military budget uh, uh, even if we don't intervene in Iran. We will still have hundreds of military bases around the world. We will still have the Pentagon uh, offering to fly military jets over sporting events and, and 4th of July celebrations and, and innumerable other uh, manifestations of, of the militarism of American political and cultural life. And those are challenges that a revived anti-war and socialist left in the United States also needs to grapple with because it means reimagining uh, reimagining American history and reimagining American politics and reimagining uh, what a sort of socialist America would stand for uh, if indeed uh, we come to the cusp of actually gaining real political power. Right. Such a, such a good way to put it. Um, you know, and in, in some ways, though, as I've talked about with other guests, um, some conversations I've had with certainly Daniel Bessner, we talked quite a bit about this, talked about this with Jacobin journalist Branko Marchetich, who writes on foreign policy stuff mm -hmm. quite a bit. And you know, in, in, in a sense, you know, we're up against this juggernaut, this this material, you know, economic, political, military juggernaut that is Amer that is U.S. imperialism. And of course, the culture is 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 just deeply ingrained and standing and cheering the jets as they fly over for the Super Bowl and singing the anthem and God bless America during the seventh inning stretch and all the rest of it. But on the other hand, as we have witnessed over the past couple of, of years and, and even really the past six to 12 months, the foreign policy establishment is remarkably weak, and when it, you know rhetorically and discursively speaking, mm -hmm. they are they're in a position where they have not been challenged to defend their ideology in decades, in a very long time. And and as any regime that is you know unchallenged in the in the realm of ideology uh, will show you, uh, they become very bad at defending themselves. They just sort of take it for granted that their ideas are dominant, and when they are challenged and in, in the seat from the seats of power. Like they have been in various congressional hearings, uh, they're they're left kind of with their pants around their ankles. They're speechless, right? They're embarrassed, yeah, by it, by, it, by people like uh, you know Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and others. Yeah, and and Daniel Bessner uh, is is a very good example of a historian who takes ideas seriously uh, and who takes the challenge of trying to build a different sort of elite political culture seriously, and recently. You may know that the Quincy Institute was founded here in D.C., and it's a sort of new think tank that is trying to bring together thinkers on the left as well as as what they call responsible realists on the right uh, who who want to sort of roll back U.S. support for for permanent warfare uh, and try and reimagine what more realistic and progressive U.S. foreign policy would look like. And part of that means 
creating a different sort of elite political culture uh, that is critical of the established foreign policy consensus, uh, which is premised on on a sort of narrow range of, of opinion regarding U.S. militarism and empire from a sort of right-wing a sort of right-wing nationalist view of American empire to a sort of liberal internationalist view of American empire, but not a, a sort of anti-imperial analysis of U.S. foreign policy. So the Quincy Institute and a few other similar initiatives are attempting to build that, you know, build that new elite political culture that can challenge the foreign policy establishment. But the question is, how does that translate into the broader public debate? How do you translate a challenge to a deeply entrenched and sort of smug and and often unreflective foreign policy elite and start changing the way that that ordinary Americans sort of talk and think about U.S. foreign policy and, and our role in the world. Um, if you listen to Bernie Sanders talk on the campaign trail, when he talks about U.S. foreign policy, you know, he uses very plain spoken language and he talks in, in sort of moral terms about right and wrong. It's wrong for the United States to intervene militarily in the affairs of other countries. It's wrong of the United States to oppose democracy, even if we sometimes don't like the results. Um, it's wrong to overthrow foreign governments. These are the kinds of ideas that I think resonate broadly with Americans, but don't necessarily resonate broadly with the foreign policy elite because they challenge deeply held assumptions about America's role in the world and about the actual history of American foreign policy rather than our sort of self-congratulatory the self-congratulatory story we tell about the history of foreign policy, uh, which is replicated in innumerable sort of opinion pieces and and hard news columns by otherwise well-informed journalists who, for example, talk about Iran and and the current sort of crisis as if the United States hasn't been intervening in Iranian affairs since the 1950s. And I think that that kind of popular education is also deeply necessary uh, if we are to try and build the broader political consciousness, which might provide the sort of mass support for a revived anti-war left that would be necessary to affect real political change in the U.S., Right. So while the, the theme of the show, the, the provocative question sort of that we started with today is what happened to the U.S. anti-war left? Uh, I think that there are some sparks and shoots emerging that, uh, you know, lend a little promise and hope for uh, not only, uh, you know, the resurgence of of the kind of classic anti-war left of the 1960s you know, and 70s, but perhaps something even better. Perhaps something that takes power, you know, the, the notion, the question responsibilities of state power very seriously because we are in a position, at least looks like we are, will be in a position for quite some time based on the, the voting patterns and the, the broad public sentiment uh, where we will have representatives uh, in the seats of power who have the, uh, you know, the opportunity of implementing a much more sane and rational foreign policy grounded in these notions of self-determination and all the rest of it. Um, so that was a fun chat. We'll, we'll have to end it there um, again. Uh, sorry, listener, for the you know for those of you who were naive or hopeful enough, one of the two, to believe that we were going to give you a definitive answer as to what happened to the U.S. anti-war uh, movement. Um, I think this is an ongoing discussion, and uh, we've we've really laid some some groundwork, some really good building blocks here to continue this. I'm going to be having some episodes in the coming days and weeks about the Iran-Iraqi uh, sort of crisis, the bellicose nature of the Trump administration, the nature of the U.S. foreign policy establishment, all the rest of it. But this was a really great primer. I look forward to your work on uh, the history of the idea of self-determination. Anything else you want to pitch before we wrap up here? Nope. 
All right, everybody look out for that book. Look forward to have you back on the show to talk about that book specifically. Brad Simpson is Associate Professor of History and Asian Studies at the University of Connecticut. He resides in D.C., longtime anti-war activist. Thanks so much for coming on DPS. Thank you.